Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's Case Notes podcast. Over the next few months, we're going to delve into the different physician branches or specialties. Just to start off with, what is a physician? Most people know what a GP is and what a surgeon is, but not everyone knows exactly what a physician does. Well, the formal description is specialists in internal medicine, so diseases and complaints that happen inside your body. And even if that sounds unfamiliar, you've almost certainly heard of a lot of the areas that this covers, like cardiology, diabetes, allergies, palliative care, infectious disease, and neurology. These are all branches of medicine or specialties that physicians are responsible for. In each coming episode of Case Notes, we will pick one of these specialties and delve into its history, looking at its development over hundreds of years and some of the interesting stories and cases from the past. We'll also talk to a current physician working in that area to find out what it is like to be working as a specialist physician in the 21st century. In this episode of Case Notes, we're looking at the past and present of pharmaceutical medicine. We'll start by looking at the history, then we're talking to Dr. Mike Sweeney about his work in the field, and we'll end with a case study. So we'll start today by delving into the history of medicines, long before the laboratory and research techniques in use in the 21st century. When we look at the medieval or early modern medicines prescribed, they can sometimes seem bizarre or ridiculous. This is, in part, because they weren't being prescribed to treat individual diseases in the sense that we understand them. They were being used to treat or balance the patient's humoral system. This system dates back to at least the time of ancient Greece. The idea is that there are four humours in the body. Yellow bile, black bile, phlegm and blood. Four corresponding temperaments. You could be phlegmatic, choleric, sanguine or melancholy. These corresponded with the four elements, earth, air, fire and water, the four seasons, spring, summer, autumn and winter, the four ages of man, childhood, adolescence, maturity and old age, and hot, cold, moist and dry. The most desirable temperament was to be sanguine, which was associated with spring and with adolescence. It was also associated with men. It was pretty unusual for a woman to be seen as sanguine. Those who were sanguine were thought to be outgoing, generous, artistic and indulgent. Melancholy, which was defined literally as an excess of choler or black bile, was not such a desirable trait. So it's all about balancing these four humours. If you were ill, that meant your humours were out of balance. And when you were treating someone who was sick, you weren't trying to cure a specific disease. You were often trying to remove the excessive humours, whether by bleeding, laxatives or vomits. One treatment for melancholy or excess of black bile prescribed putting honey and bread on a shaven head and putting leeches behind the ears. None of these things are cures in the sense that we would understand them, but they were seen as restoring you to a more balanced state. Humoral theory isn't completely gone even now, and it still crops up in some of the language we use today. When you refer to someone as hot under the collar, hot-headed, or their blood running cold with fear, you're using humoral language. And there is, of course, still the urban myth that exposure to cold can actually give you a cold. 
this isn't science, it's humoral theory. Strangely, although scientifically debunked long ago, humoral theory still pops up as the basis for a lot of office training questionnaires. If you've ever filled out one of those work questionnaires which tells you what sort of personality type you have, then you've probably tested your humoral temperament. In one case from our archives, dating from 1775, Dr. William Cullen, a past president of our college, was treating a patient, a Mistress Downman, for an excess of collar. According to one letter, quote, For weeks, indeed for some months, indulging in grief, she often shed tears during the day. She succumbed to sorrow. The letter states that because of her weak nerves, they should give her very few medicines, restricting themselves to only gum pills, castor, camphor, Rufus's pills, which were made of myrrh and saffron, common nervous tinctures, vomits, tincture of Mars, which was made of iron, bark extract, rhubarb, which is another vomit, breadcrumb pills, aloetic pills as a laxative, artificial spa water, Peruvian bark tincture, an aromatic tincture, cathartic extract, saline laxative, and calcified antimony. Antimony pills were also called everlasting pills. They were taken as laxatives and passed through you intact, and could then be rinsed off and reused. So a lot of laxatives and vomits for a woman who had no physical symptoms. There was no standard practice in terms of diagnosis or treatment at this time. Individual practitioners had their own approaches and created their own medicines. In another case treated by William Cullen, the patient was a Sir Thomas Hagerston, a baronet. His condition was gout, and the prescriptions Cullen gave included sponge biscuit dipped in Madeira, along with a range of other wines, chocolate, spirits, and four different types of syrup. So essentially, if you were wealthy, the treatment for gout, a condition associated with overindulgence, was sugar and alcohol. A range of other prescriptions from the same time period are detailed in a book titled Taylor's Ready Doctor, which was published in Falkirk. One recipe it contains is a treatment for excessive hairiness. Quote, if you have got too much hair, the blood of a bat mixed with water is fully sufficient. The prescription for the king's evil, a nasty disease similar to tuberculosis, is even more grim. Quote, Mice roasted and eaten by children is very good. Then let their heads become full of lice, until the scabs appear large, so as they may run a little. And finally, for what Taylor called warts in the private members, the recommended treatment was, quote, Apply the blood of a drake or blood of an eel, and you may depend upon being cured. A shift took place in the 1700s from homemade recipes recommended by doctors to patent medicines with secret ingredients. During this time, far more medicines received royal patents than any other invention, many thousands of them, with names including Grimstone's Eye Snuff, which was a treatment for itchy eyes containing pepper, Allen's Nipple Liniment, Hamlin's Wizard Oil, Aromatic Lozenges of Steel, for a sore throat which actually contained ground-up pieces of steel, and miraculous tooth-preserving tobacco. Remarkable to think that these products received royal patents. I should say, while these medicines all sound quite different, the main ingredients of the greater majority of patent medicines was alcohol or opium or both. However, very eminent and respectable physicians had patents for their cures. For example, Gentleman's Medicinal Chocolate, the recipe for which was later used by Cadbury's. This one apparently both settled your stomach and prevented sexual overindulgence. It was developed by Sir Hans Sloane, the founder of the British Museum, personal physician to the King and President of the Royal Society. You couldn't really get much more establishment and orthodox than him. 
Anyone could get a royal patent for a medicine. The only rule was that its formula had to be unique, but there was no need to prove that it actually worked. Before the advent of clinical pharmacology in the modern sense, you really could get away with almost everything, including rubbing pepper in a patient's eyes or encouraging them to drink bat blood. So we're talking about pharmaceutical medicine and we have Dr. Mike Sweeney with us here. Mike, I wonder if we could start off with you just saying a little bit about yourself, you know, where you work and, and what it is that you do. Okay, uh, Mike Sweeney, I work in Silicon Valley for a small biotechnology company developing new treatments for uh, cardiovascular risk, in particular looking at the non-lipid etiology of cardiovascular events. We also, as the, everything is so linked, we are also looking into cognitive dysfunction as a consequence of vascular vasculopathy and also renal dysfunction. I originally trained in uh, cardiology and internal medicine back in uh, NHS, largely around uh, Liverpool and Birmingham areas. And I moved to pharmaceutical medicine after I'd achieved the membership of the Royal College of Physicians. Thank you. I was going to say you don't have a what I would expect from a Silicon Valley, California accent there. So that, that makes sense. Okay, well, I will then I'll now call you dude and awesome all the time. Then. I'd be any fairer than that. <laughs> That'd be accurate representation. Thank you. So I guess if we just start with the, the absolute basics, you know, what is pharmaceutical medicine? Pharmaceutical medicine is the discovery and proving of new med medicines, both for safety and efficacy, to show that a pharmacological concept or a biological concept actually translates into a disease modification product and it is safe for the intended use. And essentially, as pharmaceutical medicine, you supervise and drive and design all of the studies to achieve that objective. Thank you. So following on from that, is there anything that would surprise people about the work that you do? Or are there any stereotypes or misconceptions about your work? Uh, yes, what would surprise a lot of people is a large proportion of my job is actually to prevent bad medicines getting to market. It costs a huge amount of money to develop a new medicine. And what those that aren't going to work, either because of safety or efficacy, the earlier you find that out, the cheaper it will be in the long run and the more resources you can devote to actually developing successful medicines. So something which surprises is that uh, killing bad medicines is an equally large part of my job as developing good ones. Thank you very much. So from what you said so far, this might be a slightly tricky question, but do you have a typical day in the life of your work that you could talk us through, or, or is it just incredibly varied? It is very varied. Uh, one advantage of being on the West Coast is that we have essentially all of pharmaceutical development these days is global. So I tend to get up early in the morning and conduct my European teleconferences and European study planning first thing in the morning. Then uh, as the day goes on, actually review data, talk to opinion leaders in the United States, and towards the close of the day, that means that I can then talk to physicians that we are working with in Asia, with patients and Asian issues. So the day really is driven around time uh, about uh, time zones. So a lot of Zoom meetings then, presumably. 
Oh, yes. A lot of Zoom meetings, teleconferences, etc. cetera. The, the computer and the phone are the two most vital uh, ingredients for this particular job. Thank you. So we've we've touched on your non-California accent already, but you've moved around quite a bit. You've studied in Liverpool, Manchester and London. You've, you've worked in the UK and then in the US. So I'm just interested in your, your varied experiences between those different places. And particularly, what are the differences between being a physician in the UK and, and your work in America? But as far as the physician side of it, I don't actually practice in the US. And the reason I don't practice in the US, apart from workload, is that the medicine is essentially the same. And as a, all physicians know, the medicine is only 50% of your job. The system is the other 50%, navigating the system. And the system is completely different. It is more of a, and I know people in the UK will have the difficulty believing this, it is more bureaucratic in the US than it is in the UK. There are different levels of funding. There are different funders. The patient themselves has to navigate between their health insurance, including their annual deductible, the amount they pay before the insurance pays anything. Their copay, which is the amount that they pay and the insurance pays the difference. It, it really, the difference is most of all noticed in the system rather than the medicine itself. Are there any sort of pivotal moments, not just in your career, perhaps in the sort of bigger picture of the history of pharmacy, that you think are, are important, that, that change the game or move things forward in an interesting way? Uh, yes, there's been a number. Of, one of the biggest contrasts, for example, when I was going through medical school and the surgical rotation, we spent uh, a lot of time on uh, surgery for gastric ulcers. Right now, you're probably difficult finding a surgeon who's done gastric ulcer surgery recently and this was purely the invention of the h2 blockers by uh, sir james black in the late 1970s early 1980s which actually revolutionized the whole of ulcer treatment and a, a similar advance for example is that the incidence of ischemic heart disease has plummeted over the last 30 years following the, the discovery of the statins, that they have gone to a large point to halving the incidence of myocardial infarction. But of course, new challenges come on US and the UK. The next new challenge, major challenge is diabetes. How we need to get better at new treatments for diabetes, particularly type 2 diabetes. Thank you very much. And that fits in nicely with a bit of PR for our diabetes podcast with Professor mm -hmm. Mark Strachan. Um, <laughs> uh, so, no, it's interesting to see talking to different people, the sort of recurring themes, you know, from, from different branches of medicine, what people think the concerns are and diabetes and, and geriatrics, you know, people living longer are, are the two concerns that across the board are, are really it's stuck in people's minds. Yeah. Uh, diabetes and obesity will be the ruination of the healthcare system unless unless it can uh, something can be done about it i remain optimistic though because uh, if you'd have said to 40 years ago that the amount of smoking in the united kingdom would be down into the single figures in young adults people would have laughed at you but that happened then that's a good element of a patient education maybe we can push the obesity rates back down in the other direction. When the obesity rates go down, the diabetes rates go down. 
and <laughs> everything, all the consequences for, to that. No, absolutely. And it's that slightly more um, sort of holistic approach of, you know, viewing these things as interconnected rather than different diseases for different specialists. Oh, no, that, just about every specialist is involved with diabetes, as your own podcast will no doubt. Whether, whether it's from uh, dementia to renal failure, diabetes links them all. So sticking with the, the history side of things for, for the moment, you know, imagining that the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh gives me millions of pounds, they're not going to, but imagining that they mm -hmm. did, to set up a museum of medicine and I was collecting, you know, one object from each specialty to sort of represent it in a museum, what would you pick for pharmaceutical medicine as your object? Uh, probably... A combined object, which would be one bottle of cimetidine in the same case as the uh, surgical kit for a highly selective vagotomy. So we're coming towards the end now, but I'm just interested to know, given how your specialty works, what impact has the, the COVID pandemic had upon your work? In my particular side... It was devastating, basically, uh, because, uh, as you know, there was been a big increase in the incidence of uh, cardiovascular endpoints, myocardial diseases, strokes, etc., during the pandemic because people stopped coming into their doctor. They stopped coming in for their routine medicine. People stopped going into clinical studies because they were not prepared to make visits for to be assessed in a clinical study. That we're coming out of that now. The only thing that positive is that I was also able to work on a COVID treatment, in which case it had the ability to actually impact the the pandemic as we were going along. As it turned out, the, the treatment didn't work. But then again, most treatments don't work. I think that's why we do the specialty, to find out those that do and those that don't. But for the, the majority of my uh, job, it really affected it because we were not able to recruit patients to studies. We were not able to get in the room with the opinion leaders and work out new strategies. And I know I'm on a Zoom call right now, but it's not the same. You cannot, the collaborative around the table work that you need to make things happen is much more difficult over Zoom. So I've run out of things to ask you, but before we finish up, is there anything that I haven't asked you that I should have, or anything that you would like to say that you haven't had the opportunity to? <laughs> Uh, no, just to say that uh, I've enjoyed doing uh, what I'm doing and uh, medicines I've worked on have made a big difference uh, to people's lives. And we've had our failures as well. We've had ones that we had a lot of faith in that just didn't pan out. So it's been very interesting. Uh, but I assume that's just that's an inevitable part of the process is there have to be failures in order for, for there to be successes and, and so on. Yep. Well, to, to control sorry. to control your disappointment, you have to go into every big project saying this is likely not to work because unfortunately four out of five of them will not. <laughs> well, thank you so much for for joining us today. This has been really fascinating, and I appreciate you taking the time. Yep. Thanks, Danny. Good to speak to you. For our case study today, because pharmacy is a little different from other medical specialties, we're going to do a case study of a medicine rather than of a person. 
The medicine is called Reanimating Solar Tincture, and its inventor was a man called Ebenezer Sibley. According to an advertisement for this tincture, from an issue of the Times newspaper dated the 4th of March, 1793, quote, in all circumstances of suicide or sudden death, whether by blows, fits, falls, suffocation, strangulation, drowning, apoplexy, thunder and lightning, assassination, duelling, etc., immediate recourse should be had to this medicine, which will not fail to restore life, provided the organs and juices are in a fit disposition for it, which they undoubtedly are much oftener than is imagined. One book by Sibley, titled The Medical Mirror, contains a popular account of human anatomy and physiology, including the delicate subject of reproduction. This text drew you into the hard cell of the tincture. Lots of case studies and testimonials are given. For example, when Mr. Staples was travelling in a coach to Maidstone, the gentleman sitting next to him was hit in the eye by a whip. Luckily, Mr. Staples had a bottle of solar tincture, which cured the wound in ten minutes. In another case, an eight-year-old girl was run over by a horse and carriage in Cavendish Square when, quote, the wheels passed over her body. She appeared dead and Sibley was called for, quote, I avoided letting blood, but bathed the bruised parts thoroughly with the solar tincture and introduced half a spoonful undiluted into her stomach. By the next morning, she was well enough to play with her companions. There were two different solar tinctures, one for men, one for women, each adapted to the humoral temperament of the gender. What are in these lost medicines, you may well ask? Well, Sibley is coy. Quote, The invention of these tinctures hath been the result of a long and laborious study of the properties of fire, air, earth, and water. The chemical preparation of these two subtle tinctures are constituted of a mixture of the purest elements of which our blood is formed. Who was their inventor? Ebenezer was born in Bristol in comparatively humble circumstances in 1751. He was self-educated. On the 20th of April 1792, he obtained his MD from King's College Aberdeen, although there is no evidence that he ever actually attended classes there. He claimed in his books to be a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians of Aberdeen, which is quite an achievement given that institution never actually existed. He wrote a number of books, including A Key to Physic and the Occult Sciences, a book which contained references to Freemasonry, healing by crystals, mesmerism and astrology. Sibley did a remarkable job of identifying and adapting every fashionable alternative treatment of the day and using it all as a method to promote his supposedly miraculous solar reanimating tincture. Thank you for listening to this Case Notes podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the work we do, you can visit our website at rcpe.ac.uk forward slash heritage. You can also find us on Twitter at rcpeheritage. And we have a Just Giving page, rcpeheritage, linked to on our website if you'd like to support our work and help to fund future podcasts. Thank you.